Section 8 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. The Council of Trent. Part 1. The conciliar idea, though discredited by the experience of the previous two pontificates, had by no means slumbered under either Adrian VI or Clement VII. The former had not altogether rejected the German demand for a general council, with which his imperial pupil from the first strenuously identified himself. On the other hand, Clement VII had been driven to a variety of subterfuges in order to escape the necessity of convoking one himself. There is no reason to suppose that the promise of summoning a general council made by Paul III in his conclave was intended to deceive. His insight into the actual state of the Church must have made it clear to him that no means of bringing about systematic reforms in it could be so effective as a genuine representative assembly of the Church at large, and arguments to this end were eagerly addressed to him by Sadolet and other members of the party in the Sacred College, which for the time had his ear. Yet he, like his predecessor, feared to bring together an assembly whose decrees might be moulded by the imperial will, and was still more apprehensive of the attitude which the council, if meeting under the conditions of freedom desired by the Germans, might assume toward the Protestant Reformation. Charles V, however, continued urgent, more especially after he had abandoned the hope of restoring the religious unity of the empire by force. Thus, with the view of meeting the emperor's wish, without putting the council and himself entirely into his hands, Paul III, in June 1536, actually published a bull summoning a council to Mantua for the following year. But the third war between Charles V and Francis I intervened, 1536 through 38, and when, after its close, under further pressure and some measure of menace from the emperor, the pope ordered the council to assemble at Vicenza, May 1538, the meeting was again postponed. When the project was resumed in 1541, the progress made during the interval by Protestantism in northern and central Europe and the hollowness of the religious truce patched up at Ratisbon combined to impress the necessity of definitive action upon both Pope and Emperor. At their meeting at Lucca, the Pope agreed to summon a council for the close of the following year, November 1542, to Trent, a town situate within the Empire and in the Austrian dominions. Here Cardinals Morone and Pol actually made their appearance as papal legates. But though the Emperor had likewise sent his ambassadors Mendoza and Grenvel, events once more proved too strong for him. Before the date fixed was reached, he was involved in another war with France and her ally the Turk, 1542-44, and in July 1543, the small assembly of prelates at Trent was dispersed by a bull of suspension. The Peace of Crespi, September 1544, ominous of evil for the prospects of Protestantism, was immediately followed by a papal bull summoning all the bishops of Christendom to Trent for March 15, 1545. At Rome, the council was now known to be inevitable. 
but by whom would it be controlled, and what scope should be given to its deliberations? The Pope's eyes had been opened to the whole extent of the possibilities confronting the Church when at Speyer in 1544 the Emperor had promised the Protestants to secure them a free council or settle the religious question without further ado at a diet of the Empire. As to the French Church, notwithstanding the sound articles of faith recently enunciated by the Sorbonne, March 1543, there was little hope of overawing it, except by a very decided attitude. This again was out of the question, if, in accordance with the views of Cardinal Pole, the chief functions of the assembly over which he was once more called to preside were to be the bringing back of the German Protestants into the fold and the restoration of discipline in the church at large. Paul III was accordingly both well advised in summoning the council in earnest and sagacious in choosing for the purpose the moment when Charles was concerting with Francis the suppression of the Protestants. The beginnings of the reorganization of the Church had already proved the work of internal reform to be something more than the dream of a few enthusiasts. Now, if ever, was the time for the papacy to use a general council for the advantage of the Church and of her directing power. Of Protestant importunity there need be no real fear. Luther had declared himself hopeless in 1539 as to any real reformation of the Church through a council convened by the Pope. Henry VIII, whose alliance the German princes were wooing, had protested against the authority claimed for the Mantuan Assembly, 1536. Thus there is no reason for supposing Paul III to have summoned the council on this occasion as a mere makeshift. Though the actions of this Pope were not as a rule dictated by pure religious enthusiasm, yet he had every reason for desiring a more distinct enunciation of those doctrines of the church which she was now with renewed energy propagating among heathens and heretics while at the same time using the occasion for a serious reformation of her discipline so much without prejudicing the papal control over the church paul the third may be credited with having wished to secure nor was the result out of conformity with his wishes on December 13, 1545, the three legates appointed by the Pope held their public entry into Trent, and the council was formally opened. Paul III's continued desire to conciliate the emperor was shown by his adherence to Trent as the locality of the council, when the legates again urged the choice of a town on Italian soil. Yet the very bishop of Trent, Cardinal Matruccio, was a prince of the empire, and by descent attached to the House of Austria, whose interests he consistently represented during the first series of sessions. The papal legates, with whose control over the council the emperor at the outset showed no intention of interfering, typified the different elements in the ecclesiastical policy of Paul III. The presiding legate, Cardinal del Monte, afterwards Pope Julius III, while notable neither for religious zeal nor for wise self-control, was a thorough-going supporter of the interests of the Curia. Cardinal Cervino, afterwards Pope Marcellus II, a prelate of blameless life, was animated by those ideas of ecclesiastical reform of which Pope Paul had encouraged the open expression. 
but he was more especially eager for the extirpation of heresy, and not over-scrupulous in the choice of means for reaching his ends. Lastly, Cardinal Pole's presence at Trent, in which some have seen a mere papal ruse, must have surrounded the early proceedings of the council with a hopeful glamour in the eyes of those who, like himself, expected from it the reunion as well as the reinvigoration of Western Christendom. Nothing, as had probably been foreseen at Rome, could have better facilitated the immediate establishment of the ascendancy in the council of the papal policy than the composition of its opening meeting. Of the thirty-four ecclesiastics present, only five were Spanish and two French bishops, and no German bishop had crossed the Alps. Nor had any secular power except the emperor and King Ferdinand sent their ambassadors. The business machinery of the council, which the legates lost no time in getting into order, was altogether in favor of their influence as managers. Learned doctors, without being, as in former councils, allowed to take part in the debates, prepared the work of the three committees or congregations, who in their turn brought it up for discussion to the general congregations. The sessions in which the decrees thus prepared were actually passed had a purely formal character, but before they were successively held, opportunity enough was given for manipulation and delay. The voting in the council was by heads instead of by nations, as at Constance and Basel, and care was taken to refresh by occasional additions the working majority of Italian bishops, mostly in comparison with the ultramontane prelates, holders of petty sees. Some of these were even stated to have bound themselves by a sworn engagement to uphold the interests of the Holy See, though by no means all of the Italian bishops were servile curialists, witness those of Chioggia and Fiesole. The council in its second session, January 7, 1546, waived the form of title by which previous councils had implicitly declared their representative authority paramount. On the other hand, it boded well for the cause of reform, that by an early resolution virtually all abbots and members of the monastic orders except five generals were excluded. Clearly, episcopal interest was resolved upon asserting itself. So long, however, as the German bishops were detained in their diocese by the duty of repressing heresy there, while the great body of the French were kept away by the vigilant jealousy of their government, the episcopal interest and the episcopal principle were mainly represented in the council by the Spanish prelates, the loyal subjects of Charles, and the convinced inheritors of the traditions of Jimenez. Their leader was Pacheco, Cardinal of Jaen. With him came eminent theological professors, who in the early period of the council at least were without rivals, Domenico de Soto, whom Queen Mary afterwards placed in Peter Martyr's chair at Oxford, and Bartolomeo Carranza, afterwards primate of all Spain, and for many years a prisoner of the Inquisition. Through the emperor's ambassador, the accomplished and indefatigable but not invariably discreet Mendoza, the Spanish bishops were carefully apprised of the wishes of their sovereign. The crucial question as to the order in which the council should debate the two divisions of subjects which it had met to settle had to be decided at once, and the compromise arrived at showed both the strength of the minority and the unwillingness of the leaders of the majority 
the presiding legates, to push matters to an extreme. Their instructions from the Pope were to give the declaration of dogma the preference over the announcement of disciplinary reforms, for it seemed to him of primary necessity to draw, while there was time, a clear line of demarcation between the church and heresy, and for this, as he correctly judged, the assistance of the council was absolutely indispensable. The emperor, on the other hand, was still unwilling to shut the door completely against the Protestants, while both he and the episcopal party at the council were eager for that reformation of the life and government of the church, which seemed to them her most crying need. Ultimately, it was agreed that the declaration of dogma and the reformation of abuses should be treated pari passu, the decrees formulated in each case being from time to time announced simultaneously. Taking into account the subsequent history of the council, one can hardly deny that this arrangement saved the work of the assembly from being left half done. Nor was the progress made in the period ending with the eighth session of the council, 11th March, 1547, intrigues and quarrels notwithstanding, by any means trifling. On the doctrinal side, the foundations of the faith were in the first instance examined, and the whole character of the doctrinal decrees of the council was in point of fact determined when the authority of the tradition of the church, including, of course, the decrees of her ecumenical councils, was acknowledged by the side of that of scripture. Little to the credit of the council's capacity for taking pains, the authenticity of the Vulgate was proclaimed, a pious wish being added that it should be henceforth printed as correctly as possible. At first Pope Paul III hesitated about giving his assent to these decrees, which had been passed before receiving his approval, and showed some anxiety to prevent a similar course being taken in the matter of discipline by publishing a regulatory bull on his own authority. But on being more fully advised by the legates of the nature of the situation, he consented to allow the debates to proceed, provided always that the decrees should be submitted to him before publication. During the next months, April through June, 1546, the work of the council was accordingly vigorously continued in both its branches. In that of discipline, the episcopal and monastic interests at once came into conflict on the subject of the license for preaching, and still more excitement was aroused by the question of episcopal residence, which brought into conflict the highest purposes of the episcopal office and the selfish profits of the Roman curia. The discussions on preaching ended with a reasonable compromise, monks being henceforth prohibited from preaching without the bishop's license in any churches but those of their own order. The question of residence was by the Pope's wish adjourned. End of section 8